as I was preparing to preach this week, um, I decided it would be a great opportunity for me to share um, some about myself and some about um, my wife and I, because most of you, we've chatted, we've interacted, I've maybe learned your name and then forgot it, um, but you guys don't know a lot about me, so I'm going to try to share some bits about myself today in our sermon today. Um, you know, I'm pastoring some of your children. and It can be kind of intimidating to, to take your kid, your precious little one, and to give them off to some stranger who's going to talk to them about God. Like, what if I'm crazy? What if I believe some crazy things? Like, you don't know. So hopefully today we can do some, I can reassure you a little bit. Um, just as I share the things that God has been doing in my own life. And uh, kind of where I'm at in my walk with Jesus this week. Um, you know, I also figure, hey. It's good for me to come in on a Sunday and uh, challenge the adults because if I can fix all your junk, it makes my life easier in the long run with your students because it kind of, it trickles down. I don't know if you've ever heard of trickle-down economics, but that's the principle. Good, I'm glad that you guys laughed at that because I didn't know what to expect. So last week, Pastor Trent Johnson, um, he did a fantastic sermon talking about security. And while he was preaching, I realized, wait a minute. That's the sermon I wanted to preach on next week. That was what I've been kind of stirring in my heart and kind of the idea that I wanted to push. And so I've decided that I'm just going to try to build upon what he did last week. And if you missed it, it's online. It's on our Facebook channel. It's on our Faith Life page. You can go back and rewatch it and maybe compare notes. You can judge if I did a good job of building on top of his sermon or not. Um, but it was fantastic. And... Um, We've been living through one of the most disruptive and stressful time periods that I've ever been alive for. Um, and one of the things that's really unique about this time is the young people in our worlds are looking at us and they're seeing the way that we react to all of the political changes and chaos and the political polarization that we've seen in our world and even in the church. Um, the way we respond to all the stress and all the change we've experienced as we're coming out of the pandemic. And they're looking at us, and they're watching how we react, and they're learning from it. Whether we, like, realize that or not, whether we're trying to train young people or not, we are. And um, our city is, we're still recovering from the events when George Floyd was murdered last summer. We're still coming out of all these changes. And, you know, our, our jobs have been affected, our home lives, our kids, our finances. And as things are starting to get close to normal again, a lot of us are realizing that, we're going to have this holdover anxiety whenever we hear someone cough in the supermarket. We're going to have this hold. Whenever we get sick, we're going to be a little extra on guard. Like, oh no, are people going to think that I'm going to get them sick? Or we, we, the, the impacts of this are going to be ongoing for the rest of our lives. And uh, that doesn't even touch in on personal drama. That's always been there, right? There's always been personal drama in our lives. There's always been relational issues that everyone has in their relationships and that alone can be sometimes overwhelming and overbearing. And so when we stack all of these things on top of each other, we can feel like God is just grabbing us by the shoulders and shaking us. Like, God, what are you doing right now? Why can't I find solid ground to walk on? Why, why do I feel like I'm moving from one crisis to the next sometimes in my life? And uh, I view all of this from the perspective of someone that works with children and teenagers. Like... What are they learning as they watch us go through these things? And um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. The way we handle our spiritual lives 
matters so much more in times of crisis than it does sometimes even when things are good. And I believe that when things are good, the way you handle your spiritual life carries over to the crisis. But if you're not dealing with things well in the crisis, it snowballs. And sometimes we, we walk further away from God when there's crisis in our lives. And so um, how do we view the things that God is doing in our world, in our church, and respond to them properly? One of the most important things the Bible does is it shapes the way we view the world. Raise your hand. I don't, actually, I'm not going to do this because I don't want to embarrass any of you. Colorblindness affects roughly 4% of the population, 8% of males, and 0.5% of all females. And what happens is the, the cones in your eyes, there's three sets of them. One or more will fail to work properly, and so you'll be missing out on one chunk of the color spectrum usually. And I think the most common one is red-green. Isn't that, is that right? Red-green is the most common one that fails? Yeah. And so most people, if they have red-green color blindness, they can actually purchase these very expensive lenses, and you put them on, and it will actually tweak their vision to fix their color blindness. And so people, when they wear these expensive lenses, it's like they start to see the world in a different light for the first time in their lives. And so if you've ever watched these videos on YouTube, you can look them up. People will put on these colorblind lenses, and they'll start weeping. Because the world that they knew just suddenly got deeper. It expanded. It grew. Does that make sense? And it's like these colorblind lenses, it changed the way they viewed the world and what the world could be. And normally, it's the color purple that they seem to fixate on. Because purple is this weird amalgamation of color that, like, it's not supposed to exist on the visible. I don't even know how it works. I'm not a scientist. But that seems to be the one. They'll notice the color purple for the first time, and it'll just wreck them. It'll change their lives. And this is kind of the way that Scripture works. It's like color-correcting lenses that we can put on. And when, when God speaks out of Scripture to us, it changes the way we view the world fundamentally. It's like we go through our lives colorblind until God gets in there and he starts to alter the way we view things and change us from a fundamental level. And so today, I want to invite you guys to put on some uh, color-correcting lenses with me as we walk through these questions about all the chaos that goes on in our world and what Scripture has to say about us. Um, so, okay, before Israel had a king, they were ruled by judges. These judges would act as mediators that would, they would mediate between the 12 tribes of Israel and they'd help make decisions. And so towards the end of the period of the judges, Israel was at war with Philistine. And the war was going badly. In their most recent defeat, they'd lost 4,000 men. And so they're going into these battles, and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant with them, and God is blessing them. But all of a sudden, the tide shifts. And they start losing their battles with the Philistines. And it's like, they start asking themselves, what do we need to do to start winning? What do we need to do to change the outcomes of these battles? So they had an idea. The priests and the leaders... They say, you know what? God hasn't really commanded us to go fight right now. Well, let's surprise the Philistines. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get the priests. And let's just go attack them now. And so they muster all their might. They put the Ark of the Covenant at the front of their force because they want God to go with them. They say, if we bring the Ark, that means God has blessed our victory. And so they go and they fight the Philistines. And it turns out that God was not with them. Because the Israelites lose 30,000 men in this battle. And the Philistines, they saw this as an incredible victory. 
Because what this meant, the Israelites brought their God into battle. They brought the Ark of the Covenant. The, the seat, the footstool of God was in battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines won and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And to, to the Philistines, this meant that their gods were mightier than the gods of Israel. And they had this specific god they worshipped called Dagon. And so this is like a battle, a cosmic battle between Dagon and Yahweh. And Yahweh was defeated. Dagon is superior to Yahweh. That's what they took from that. That's what it meant. And that's what it meant to the Israelites too. They're looking at themselves like, oh my goodness. I thought we couldn't lose. I thought we were undefeatable. But the gods of the Philistines are mightier than my God. And it, they're crushed and they're taken to this low, low point. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, it says the Philistines captured the ark. They took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the Ark of God to the temple of Dagon and placed it beside the idol of Dagon. When the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen down before the Ark of the Lord again. This time his head and hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. And so what was intended to be a symbol of Yahweh's defeat became this story about Yahweh's dominance, right? Dagon defeated Yahweh, but, and so they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. They place it in front of Dagon. And the first night, Dagon falls over, bowing before the throne of God, the throne of Yahweh. So they pick it back up. They're like, oh, weird. The wind must have been really strong last night. And, and the next night, the same thing happens, but this time Dagon is shattered. His hands are cut off, and his head is cut off. And this is actually a symbol. Um, ancient kings would do this. When they defeated another king, they would cut off his hands as a sign of his powerlessness. You can't do anything when your hands are cut off. And it was a sign of dominance. And so when they walked in and they saw Dagon handless in front of the throne of Yahweh, they knew what was happening. I mean, immediately. Anyone involved in the cult of Dagon was like, oh no. Like the Israelites, they're thinking the Israelites tricked them, right? Like the Israelites purposely lost the battle so that Yahweh could come in and humiliate them in their own temple. And it's this powerful symbol. And so the Philistines are freaking out. They're, they're terrified. And so the Philistines, they send the Ark of the Covenant, or sorry, the Ark of the, the Covenant back to Israel with a cart loaded with gold, and this is after um, some plagues break out in the Philistine towns and cities, and people break out in tumors, and they start taking the ark and sending it to other cities in their nation. But Yahweh keeps doing these signs to display his dominance among the people, and so they load up a cart full of gold without a driver, and they just push the, the cow over, Israelite, over into Israelite territory. They start making sacrifices to Yahweh, because he's displayed the, his dominance over them. And it's this incredible symbol of what's happening. Yahweh shook the God of the Philistines so strongly that they started making sacrifices to Yahweh because of his dominance over them. And it becomes this story in the history of Israel where they're like, even in our defeat, even when the, the nation of Israel lies defeated under the foot of other nations, our God is still supreme. Like Dagon isn't greater than Yahweh. 
And as future generations come and they look back to these stories when the Babylonians defeat them, they look back at this story and they're they're just reminded, like, our God is still so supreme. Even though we're people living in exile, even though we've been taken away to be enslaved by these other nations, God is still on the throne. And the other gods bow down before him. And so, but one of the things that they miss and this is important for us as we look back, is the, the nation of Israel thought it could subjugate Yahweh. They thought they could use him as a tool to give them victory in their own battles. Do you see that? They thought if we just get Yahweh, we can fly his flag under the flag of Israel and we'll win. If we just, it's like a slot machine God. Like if we just do the right thing, eventually God's going to give us what we want. And that's not how it works. As, it, as the Israelites learned the hard way, they lost 30,000 men that day. And uh, we have some false gods in the United States. We put our faith in some false gods the way that the Philistines put their, their faith in, in the God of Dagon. And sometimes when we encounter these moments of shaking in our lives, God is trying to cut off the hands of the, of the gods that we worship. When we encounter instability, when we encounter these moments of turmoil, it it can become an opportunity for God to take his rightful place in our lives. And it's not a punishment. It's It's not God's judgment. It's God giving you a gift to put him in the rightful place. Not the flag of me and the flag of God, but the flag of God and the flag of me. You know, Dagon was a god of fertility and a god of wealth. And, you know, if you're a farmer, You want fertility. You want your crops to grow well. You want your plants to bloom and you want your fruit to be delicious and sweet because that's all you have. You want your animals to have babies and them to be healthy. And I just kind of, I'm asking myself this question, like, if you were to take the Philistines and their worship of these gods so they could have, you know, bountiful crops and, and animals that had lots of babies, what would it look like in, in our world today? What is our fertility God? You know, how do we pray for success? And, you know, if we make sacrifices to this God, things will go well. And I would say we kind of approach the economy with that, that attitude sometimes. Like if the economy is going well and if the economy is healthy, we'll have food on our tables. And so we, we can sometimes worship the God of the economy. And maybe this is more of a political discussion than anything else. But um, money can become a false god in our own personal lives. Like, if I, have, if I just have enough in the bank, everything's going to be okay. Like, if my credit score is good, everything's going to be okay. I can, I can work it out. If I, just, if I can just work enough, if, if I can, you know, do whatever it takes to get food on the table, things are going to be okay in my life. And If America had an idol to Dagon, I think it would look a lot like the stock market. Um, you know, our economy got shut down basically when COVID started and stocks recovered really quick, it looked like. Um, but there's kind of this fear among economists that the, the markets are overinflated, which means there's been so much money pumped into our markets that it doesn't reflect the true value of what our economy really is, the true health of our economy. And there's this fear that it's a bubble that's going to pop. And, you know, it seems right now like wages are going up across the United States, um, Places are just desperate to get employees. And there's, there's a lot of optimism right now. But inflation is up 
And there's all these other unknowns that come financially. And so if we worship the money or the economy, it becomes a very fickle God. Because you get these big ups and you get these big downs. And uh, for a lot of us who find our sense of personal work, like we need to be busy, we need to be working to feel good about ourselves. I would say this is me too, I do this. Like I got laid off at the start of the pandemic from my secular job. And your, your, your sense of self-worth can take a hit sometimes. Like, God can come in and just shake, like, where do you find your purpose? Are you finding it in your ability to work and make money, or, or is it coming from something else? And so that's the first false God that I think sometimes gets shaken in our lives. And this, remember, this isn't just me wagging my finger at you. This is an opportunity for us to identify, like, wait a minute, God isn't in the, in the, in the seat of power in my heart. So it's not a bad thing when, when, we, when we realize, wait a minute, like, this is controlling me. It's an opportunity for you to replace it with God. And so don't misunderstand me as I talk about these things. I think the false god of entertainment was shaken back in 2020. The entire entertainment industry had to shut down. And so, like, there weren't a lot of new shows. My wife and I, we love going to the movies. That was, like, our primary date night. And until, like, a week ago, we saw our first movie together in, like, a year and a half. We saw Black Widow together in our basement. And it was like this, oh, yeah, this is what it used to be like. This is what it used to be like to do something fun with my wife or to go out and do these fun things. And so for a lot of us who just find our value or maybe our purpose in distracting ourselves from our problems, that was shaken in some ways. Um, Pop over this. Sometimes I think one of the things that got really messed up in these past years is the false god of sex and relationships. I think sometimes we can make a god out of our marriages. Sometimes we can worship, like, we look at Instagram, right? I don't know how many, raise your hand if you use Instagram. I'm still learning this congregation. I don't know if that's, okay, raise your hand if you don't use Instagram. You're like, Pastor, okay, oh my goodness. Okay, Instagram is a bad example. Raise your hand if you use Facebook. Raise your hand if you don't use Facebook. Man, you guys are not homogenous at all, okay. But we sometimes look at other people. And we think, man, their marriage is so good. I wish mine was like that. I wish my spouse loved me or wish, I wish, what do I need to change about myself so that I can have that type of relationship? And we say, this is like the God that we worship. How do I get this? How do I, how do I get the, either, either get this or get the appearance of this? And for people my age, we look at people on Instagram or Facebook. And we see the highlights and, and the beautiful moments, you know, when you're out on a date and they're kissing, you're like, oh man, it's been so long since we had a moment like that. And it, it, it beats on you. And sometimes I think we try to find ourselves of, self of security or value of purpose in other people. And, you know, I'm not going to accuse anyone in this building of doing this, but I think for a lot of people, casual relationships and casual sex got messed up in the past year, that the God that they worshiped of sexual fulfillment wasn't happening the way, and maybe some of you married people, you're spending more time together in your, in, in your house and you fight more, so maybe that got messed up for you too. And sometimes God comes and he challenges these gods that we worship so he can come in and replace them. Raise your hand if your relationship with technology has changed in the past year and a half. 
I think most, most of us, I think we've all realized the limits of technology and how good it's been. Like, technology, ever since 2010, when smartphones were invented, has just been taking more and more importance in our lives, right? It's been more important. It's, it's taking up more of our time, more of our attention. And we kind of got sick of Zoom meetings and, you know, having phone calls. And we just started craving, like, I can't wait until I can be with people again. And so it's this... It's this, and maybe it's just for the younger people that, are, that struggle with this more. It's like your ability to worship just distraction and entertainment was shaken by the pandemic. And I think there's two left, and I, this one I think is the one that I've struggled with most. I think this is the God that has been shaken for me more than any other. The God of pride and self-reliance. If your past year and a half has been anything like mine, it's revealed how fragile your world is and how easy it is for things to be disrupted. Um, I have been humbled more in the past year and a half than I think my entire life. And um, COVID forced us to cancel a mission trip that we'd been planning for years. It was going to be the first missions trip that I'd ever been on. We were going to go to Guatemala. And I'd put so much time and so much energy and I'd you know, we taught the kids how to do magic tricks, and we taught the kids how to solve Rubik's Cubes, and we prepared testimonies and sermons, and we were going to go down, and it was going to be transformative for all of us. And a day before we were going to leave, Guatemala closed its borders. Kind of, they were kind of maybe closing their borders and kind of not, and we had to make a decision if we were going to risk going down and getting stuck in country. And the hardest decision I've ever had to make was just to cancel it. Just to say, you know what? I don't want to have to tell parents that their, their kids are going to be away for an extra two weeks because the borders got closed. And so um, thankfully, we, it was the right call because we would have been stuck there for an extra two weeks if we had. But it, just, it was this hit to my pride. Like I, put, I did so much to make this happen, and God came in and he said no. Last February... Not this February, but the February before our senior pastor resigned. And I got to see how fragile a church really is. I got to see how destructive gossip behind the scenes can really be in a church when relationships are wounded. And I got to see why we have all these instructions about, you know, the way we treat each other in the church and in Christianity. And it was so humbling because it was the church that I'd spent 17 years growing up in. And it seemed indestructible. It was this monolith in my life. And it, it came so close to just falling apart overnight. But it's like the thing that I found, I've been standing on, this rock that I thought was solid was really not. And God called us to leave shortly thereafter. He, he told us to, you know, steward the transition, make sure the church stayed healthy while we were there, and to make sure the next people did well when they came in. But he called us to leave this church that I grew up in, that I got married in, that I met my wife in, that I became a pastor in, that I'd you know, given my first sermons in. And it was so disorienting because I almost felt like nothing could touch me. Like no, there was no problem in my life so big I couldn't overcome. And we left the solid ground that I'd known. 
And he called us to leave the Assemblies of God, the denomination that I grew up in, and come to a different church. And in each step, we were following God's voice. We knew, God, yes, this. And there was these blessings. There was these markers along the way that confirmed it was God, and it wasn't just us making it up. And we, we, we found this beautiful house down in St. Paul, and we moved, and we felt God's hand. Our realtor actually said, you guys must have God's favor. Because you put in one offer, and that was the house you got. No one, no one can do that in this market. And she, even she was recognizing God's hand in this transition. We closed on the house one day before interest rates went up 25%. And so it's just been marker after marker of God saying yes. And it, when things are going well, it's really easy to rejoice that you're in God's plans. The first week we moved into our house, um, our refrigerator shocked my wife. Um, really strong, really terrifyingly strong. And so I, I was like, I'm going to be a big macho man, right? So I went up to the fridge and I pulled it out from the wall. And while I was pulling it out from the wall, the current electrified the entire fridge and I got stuck holding onto the fridge and I couldn't let go for about five seconds. And I got off and I was, you know, freaked out and kind of adrenaline rushed. And we got an electrician and I was joking around with him when he got there. I was like, yeah. I got stuck on there, but somehow I got off. It's no big deal. And he, was, he got super serious, and he said, you could have died. And he said, if you were holding your baby, your baby would have been in serious danger of injury or death. And it was like, oh, my goodness, right? Like, the confidence that I had that I was walking in God's favor suddenly was, like, replaced with doubt. Like, my kid, for four days, that thing was just pulsing with 120 volts. And my wife could have touched it or my son could have touched it. And it was just this dark cloud kind of entered in our head. And the next week, everyone in our house got sick. And that messed everything up. And then the week after that, we caught someone trying to break into our house. And so, you know, it's really easy to rejoice that you're in God's favor when things are going well. But when you're shaken, it forces you to confront some things. And God has been confronting the sense that I have that I can... That if I'm, if I'm smart enough, if I plan enough ahead, if, if I work hard enough, my wife will never be in danger. My son will never have to worry. There'll, there won't be any problems in our lives if I'm good enough. And I know for a lot of us that becomes the struggle. And God has come to me and he has shaken that. And he's saying, if I put you here, if I placed you in this house, then it's not about you being good enough. It's about me knowing what I'm doing and me being good enough and me leading you through trials and troubles so you can get to what's on the other side. And it's about this submission to God and saying, you know what, I don't have control. You know, I can, I can work and slave and buy a security system and set up cameras, but really, those are false senses of security. Those aren't going to stop anybody from doing anything. You know, I think sometimes I make the same mistakes that Israel did. I think sometimes I can have the confidence that I'm going forward in God's will when really it's me trying to put the flag of God below my own flag. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we do this a lot. You know, God has shaken my ability to rely on my own strength this past year and a half, and I know I'm not the only one. And there's one other thing that I think God has shaken in a lot of our lives. And this is where I might upset some of you, but I think it needs to happen. Maybe you haven't been shaken enough. 
I believe the God of political power has been shaken in our nation. If, um, if your trust in human political systems has not been shaken, um, I want to just kind of shake you a little bit today. We have just come out of the most divisive, polarized election that I've ever been alive for. I mean, I've only, I've only been around for the Bush years, the Obama years, and now the, the Trump and Biden years. I haven't ever seen anything this polarized or divided. And I know even in our church, we've seen some of that tension come to the surface. And it's, it's this question of, I'm putting my trust in this political system, or I'm putting my trust in this political system, or I don't trust this political system. I don't trust this political system, so I'm going to go with the other guys. And so we double down. We say, you know, like, yeah, I know this I know the Republican Party isn't perfect, or I know the Democrat Party isn't perfect, but they're better than the other guys. And political power is a false god. It comes out of a place of pride and arrogance that if we are good enough, we can reach a utopia. That humanity is capable of making a perfect world, when the reality is, we're not. That is the story of Christianity. The story of Christianity is humans trying over and over again to do it themselves and God saying, I am sending you a king. You're not going to pick your own. You're not going to elect an official. I have a king that is coming and he is going to set things right. It's about placing your trust in the king that comes, not in the king that you go out and find and vote for. I'm going I'm to hit on this a little more because this, this, is, this is a big this is a big deal in my heart. Um, this is uh, Philippians 3. I told you before and I say it again with tears in my eyes that there are many whose conduct shows they're enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. And this is bolded in my notes, this next line. And they think only about life here on this earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we're eagerly awaiting him to return as our savior where he will take our mortal bodies and change them into glorious ones like him using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Our trust is not in our candidate. It's not in our parties. It's not in our philosophies. And it's okay to vote. It's okay to support movements. But if your trust, if you are putting your weight and saying, the hope for our country lies in these people, then you are headed for disappointment the way every generation in history has been. Our nation has been shaken to show how unstable human kingdoms truly are. And to remind us of our citizenship in God's kingdom, not the kingdoms of men. And if Yahweh were to ever cut down knock off the head and the hands of any of our gods, I pray that it would be the God of political power. I want it to be the God of political power. I want to be able to say, you know what? I believe that you have good intentions, but you're not going to do anything as good as what I believe God is capable of doing. And it's, it's this release of control because the lie of democracy is that you have control, that you have power. That's the lie. And I believe democracy is the best form of government we can get, but there's there's, there's bad things that come out of it. It convinces us that if we work hard enough, if we do enough, that we can fix the problems in our world. And it's the exact same mistake the Israelites made when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. They put the flag of Yahweh under the flag of their national interests. 
When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray the words, may your kingdom come. And God isn't interested in sharing land with his kingdom. He's not interested in sharing power. And that means the death of all nations on earth. If God's kingdom is to truly come, it means the American flag ceases to exist. And that is a scary thing, right? Because this is the greatest country on the earth. Like, we have it better than anybody else on the planet. And God's kingdom is going to come and supplant it. And to wipe it away. And all this political division in our church and in our families, it's wasted. We're dividing our relationships with each other over nothing because it will fade away. And it is an invitation from God to stop placing our trust in these destructible things, in these temporary things, and to let go and to say, God, I trust you. And it is a blessing to be shaken. It is a blessing to have your confidence in temporal things wiped away. It is an opportunity for us to approach the throne of God and say, God, may your kingdom come in my life. In all its fullness, in the hard times and in the good times, in the blessings and in the sacrifices, Father. And it transforms us into a people that look like the, the, the ones gathered before his throne in the book of Revelation. It transforms us into a multi-ethnic group of people who are healed in our relationships with each other because we're united under one flag, and it's the flag of Jesus. And there is a crisis every day. Every day is an opportunity for us to realize where we place our trust. In Hebrews 12, 26 through 29, it says, When our God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but once again he makes another promise. Once again I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. And in response to uncertainty... In response to chaos and in response to the death of our false gods, we need to double down on God's kingdom. We need to double down on his leadership and chase after an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we have not yet experienced. It is a gift to have our Dagons destroyed. It might not be a feel-good moment. It might not be this powerful thing that's like, yes, I'm so glad I'm suffering right now. But it is an opportunity For you to learn how to praise God in your suffering. Money, sex, relationships, political power, control, safety, and security. This is my only point for you today. As our world is shaken, we need to seek safe harbor in the kingdom of heaven. Worship band, if you guys could come up and start getting ready. I don't know how this past year has affected you personally. I know it has, and um, I just believe that God uses these turmoils to draw us closer to him in new ways. You know, I've been interacting with, the, with some of the Karen people at this church, and their story is so interesting. You know, they've been persecuted by the Myanmar government and forced into refugee camps, and many of the ones that are here have been taken specifically because they were refugees and brought over to this country. And when I read the Bible with their story in mind, 
And I read the story of Israel in exile calling out for God to come and rescue them. They're not putting their, their hope in anything else but God coming and being there. It's like, it's like I'm reading the Bible with new eyes. Like, this isn't even written with me in mind. This is written for people who have suffered far more than I ever could. Like, it means something more to them than it does to me because I've lived a privileged, easy life. But we can look at the times in our life when we struggle and use them as opportunities to view God in this new light. He wants to become the solid ground beneath your feet. He wants to take the, his rightful place as Lord of your life. And it means letting go. And today we're going to teach you guys a new song, and we're going to sing it together. And it's very, very simple. Let all the other names fade away. Let all the other names fade away until there's only you. Let all the other names fade away. Jesus, take your place. Jesus, take your place. Jesus, take your place. Jesus, take your place. And I just want to invite you to give God permission to step in in the shaking to be involved in the struggle so he can take his place.